week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we talk healthcare, AI, and digital pathology with Matt Taylor of Samba Nova. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipoc. Zipoc. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today I have a couple of special guests to talk to us about some uh, healthcare related things, some AI related things. So with us today, of course, uh, when we talk about these things, we have Esteban Rubin. So Esteban, what do you do and how do we reach you? Hey Justin, great to be here. I'm in the industry uh, solution, solutions team. I focus on healthcare, and uh, well, they can anybody can reach me at esteban.rubens at netup.com. So that's e s t e b a n dot r u b e n s at netup.com, or on LinkedIn. And my fields within healthcare are, as you noted, AI and cloud for for those specific areas uh, involving providers, payers, and life sizes. All right, excellent. Also with us today, we have Matt Taylor, and he is from Samba Nova Systems. So, uh, Matt, what do you do at Samba Nova, and how do we reach you? Yeah, thanks, Justin. I'm really, uh, really happy to be here and uh, talk with you and Esteban today. So, uh, yeah, I run our Partnerships and Alliances team here at Samba Nova, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what Samba Nova is, but we're really a full-stack AI platform company. And my uh, easiest way to reach me is actually at my email, matt.taylor at sambanovasystems.com, or you can also find me on LinkedIn. And in terms of kind of my focus areas, I'm working with the overall AI partner ecosystem. So, you know, NetApp is one of those key partners for us, uh, both from a technology integration perspective, as well as a go-to-market perspective. And so, you know, really happy to be here today and talk a little bit about uh, some of the challenges we're seeing in the uh, AI and healthcare space. All right. Excellent. Um, so before we get started, I'd like to kind of just talk about Samba Nova Systems in general. So, you know, I don't know if you know the entire company history, but feel free to tell us as much as possible about Samba Nova for those of us who don't know what that is. Yeah, sure. Well, what do we have? Half an hour, 45 minutes for this? Is that right? <laughs> as long as you need, man. <laughs> no, no, no. Just kidding. So uh, Samba Nova is actually uh, a startup company. We were formed about four years ago. We have to we have to catch ourselves in saying we're a startup. We're a you know, five, 600 person company at this point. Uh, we really have set out the company to develop a full stack uh, advanced AI solution. And really what that means to us is we've built a complete AI solution from our own custom silicon all the way through a custom software stack, uh, compiler, uh, and uh, AI algorithms that we offer to the market for specific use cases. And where we're spending the majority of our time today is really in solving advanced AI or what you might call kind of deep learning problems in the natural language processing space and also in the computer vision space. And uh, you know, where we're really seeing a lot of interest in is taking these what are called kind of foundational models. So these really large models that can solve multiple problems and bringing those to enterprises to solve a, a multitude of AI problems with uh, you know, one large model that can be multifunctional. And we'll talk a little bit more about that and kind of you know, the problems we see that solving in the healthcare space specifically today. All right. So uh, Esteban, you know, 
kind of give me an idea of where you first discovered Samba Nova. Like, where have you heard about them and what sort of things have they brought into the healthcare space as it pertains to NetApp? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So we first met at a conference, healthcare conference, and it turns out that there are, of course, as we discussed in the past, a lot of healthcare organizations, both payers and providers, certain life sciences, are doing a lot of AI, right? They're training models for different reasons. They're kind of trying to tackle clinical problems. They're trying to tackle, tackle uh, fraud, waste, and abuse. I mean, really a number of things, training chatbots. And the, the landscape until kind of recently was pretty uniform in that there were really not that many options, you know, in terms of what compute platform you would use for all this work. And so, uh, you know, I, I do love our capitalist system and it turns out that, well, of course, that's an opportunity for new entrants to the market to do different things. And as uh, Matt was saying, the interesting thing is this idea of a bespoke platform, right? And it, it just starting from scratch and developing not only a compute platform, but an ecosystem, you know, software ecosystem that is meant for AI, right? For deep learning training, for inference, for any number of things in that area. And of course, that ends up being a little different. And so there's great uh, implications in terms of performance. Uh, very interestingly, even though everybody does a bit of greenwashing and sort of paying lip service to, to power consumption, it's starting to be very fortunately something that people care about in the corporate world. So I would say in the last six, nine, maybe up to 12 months ago, I've started hearing from customers, this is a concern of ours, right? The, the power that we can unleash from our data using these mathematical tools in, in deep learning is amazing, but all of a sudden things weren't looking that great in terms of power consumption, right? The, the carbon footprint of doing all this work and the one of the benefits of, of these new architectures is that they really address that problem. It's not the only thing, but that's that's certainly a very interesting area for all of us because customers are coming to us with that problem, right? Saying, you know, we need to figure this out. And, and even things like, well, we uh, want to do this project and it turns out that um, our data center can't even accommodate the power requirements that, that we're hearing from other vendors, which is kind of mind-boggling if you think about it. And, and and this is not stuff that I'm making up. These are these are real conversations that I've been having, you know, fairly recently with with customers. So that is the that was the starting point, right? Because we do talk to a lot of customers who are involved in these projects, and it's not just the power consumption, but the idea of having options, right? Not relying on a single source. So it's it's a combination of all those factors that. Uh, has created a, a really great opportunity for us and, and certainly talking to joint customers, you know, unsurprisingly, NetApp is everywhere in healthcare, really something like nine out of 10 of the, the largest healthcare organizations in the world have NetApp. So we get in front of these people and this is a really interesting arrow in our quiver to solve problems that our customers are posing to us. So Matt, from your perspective, um, you know, what have you seen from NetApp that helps Samba Nova. Like, what, what from your from your side of things? Like, what is NetApp doing that Samba Nova can take advantage of? Yeah, yeah, really good question. Yeah, I think we've been focusing the majority of our um, of our work together in a couple of different areas. So, 
One is actually you know, focused on delivering a, uh, I'll call it a reference architecture, but effectively a solution together that uh, enables customers to be able to deploy these complex systems much faster and easier. And, you know, well, well, you know, we love to talk about the technology and, you know, all the great problems it's solving, et cetera. The reality is, you know, the organizational challenges that a lot of companies face in deploying these complex systems is a major incumbent to getting, uh, you know, frankly, uh, these environments into, you know, production environment. And so, you know, one of the things that we spent the time on early on was saying, let's go develop a reference architecture that we can then take out to customers and, you know, give to them to show kind of the best in class, um, you know, uh, solution that combines NetApp with Salmonova and provides a solution that you can very easily go and deploy using this blueprint. So that's one of the things that we've done. Like I said, it's not really about the technology. It's really about the you know, ease of use or kind of you know, time, to, time to insights, as we like to call it, in, in getting you know, these, these really kind of complex and, and valuable systems deployed. You know, that's one of the things we've done. I'd say the other one that we've been working on is looking at some of the specific use cases in uh, the healthcare life sciences area and starting to build out solutions, architectures, and roadmaps together, where we're really you know, focused on saying, how do we go solve uh, you know, a specific healthcare challenge that we see? You know, one of the ones that both Esteban and I think are, are really interesting is around uh, the use of high-resolution computer vision models for things like medical imaging. Um, if you look at medical imaging today, uh, I'll probably get the stats wrong here, but the number of images is increasing by a factor that is significantly higher than the number of technicians that we have coming into this field. And the challenge that we see is, you know, this isn't slowing, right? Um, you know, medical imaging is becoming more pervasive, both in um, uh, established markets as well as emerging markets. And the resolution within these images is getting higher and higher. And so, you know, one of the areas that Salmonova is uniquely positioned is that we have in our solution put down a, a very large memory footprint in our, in our silicon and in our systems. And what that allows us to do is basically process these medical images in their what we call true resolution. So you don't have to go and break up the images or what's called kind of downsampling or tiling the image. You can actually take an entire 50K by 50K image and process that using our technology and the NetApp technology uh, without any sort of, um, uh, let's say, uh, you know, reduction in the accuracy or reduction in the resolution of those images. And so, you know, what I think you'll see, you know, coming, coming up here is more and more of the kind of these reference architectures that just started at the kind of hardware level, moving more and more into these use case levels where we can say, you know, using uh, NetApp and, you know, the, the, the ideal sort of file formats and the ideal, uh, you know, sort of uh, storage solutions that, that they have for, for a diverse set of images or a diverse set of data combined with our solution is really going to give, you know, more end-to-end -end solutions to customers. So those are, you know, two of the big things that we're working on and that we're, we're hearing really good feedback from customers on. 
Yeah, that, that's super interesting that you bring that up, Matt, because I think a lot of people have this idea that um, sort of piling or, or chopping up images is kind of necessary, right? And it turns out that it's really related to memory available in your compute infrastructure. And if your computer infrastructure doesn't can handle those, then, well, you have to do workarounds. But it's become so ingrained that I think a lot of people would, be, even researchers in the area, would be surprised to know that, hey, you can just take the whole image and, you know, something like a digital pathology image, which is enormous, you know, gigapixels, and yep. just look at it directly. So that's certainly one thing. And the other thing I think where we dovetail very nicely is in our approach to consolidation and simplicity, you know, something yeah. you brought up, where can we look at it from the data point of view, you know, from the data layer where we don't think that it's necessary to have all these different silos for different workloads and, you know, different protocols where, you know, some people are like, oh, okay, you know, for NFS, I have this, for SMB, I have that, for block i have this other thing if i want to go s3 locally i do you know etc 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 whereas our approach is well you don't need to do that you know it's just one platform for absolutely everything no matter where you know prime the cloud etc etc and then in your case what i found very interesting that in that it helps customers is that you can do really everything with the same compute infrastructure so it's kind of what we have been talking about from the data side, but in the compute side, and very specifically, I'll throw this back to you, is, well, talking to customers, it, it's certainly in healthcare, it turns out that there's just way too many silos stemming from the old divide where people were doing, quote unquote, big data. So they had mm -hmm. Hadoop clusters and any number of other things for those workloads. And then they started doing AI and they bought equipment for that. So there's an infrastructure. And now they've ended up with kind of a bunch of disparate systems, but in the end, it's all about crunching data. It's about kind of extracting value from data. So why do you need to have all of these? So that is a very interesting direction because it, it's something that does come up often and it's something that we've started talking to customers about. So you, what do you think from the Samanova side in terms of that consolidation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what you know, we, we we see kind of this interesting trend that um, you know customers many times start down a path of doing analytics, right? I mean, you know, big data and analytics is not a is not a new concept, right? You know, this has been the you know the buzzword for the last you know number of number of years in the industry, but they really you know weren't connecting this to an AI workflow and an AI pipeline. And what we have found is uh, you know, these many times were were set up as different disparate groups within an organization. And a lot of it came down to this perception that, oh, AI is too complicated. You know, we need to have a specialist organization that is just, you know, responsible for this. And what we've seen is, you know, customers that have been successful in their AI journeys have really viewed this as a, uh, you know, effectively as an end-to-end -end workflow, right? Which is basically saying, hey, I'm going to take, you know, these multiple sources of data that I have, structured, unstructured, et cetera, bring these into uh, a machine learning AI pipeline where I'm going to think about what is the task or what is the outcome that I want to get it from this and not just focus on, you know, an analytics outcome, but actually focus on insights or signals that you can get from the multitudes of these data. 
And they actually combine these organizations. I mean, this is what we've seen actually work quite well is not having these separate siloed organizations where, you know, there's a data team, there's an analytics team, and then there's a separate AI team where you combine these together and you look at the full end-to-end workflow from data sources, data ingest to all the way through how do I build you know, a set of applications on the other end where I get these signals into is really where we're seeing success. And you know, not every company has done that for sure, but it's one of the big differences we've seen between companies that are doing uh, you know, AI for experimentation, as I like to call it, or really kind of R&D projects that never get to production versus customers that are getting into production. And you know, this is one of the big things that you know, we see as a, as a challenge, frankly, for for organizations. Is you know, there's lots of stats on this, but you know, depending on which one you read, something like seventy or eighty percent of the AI projects never get out of R and D or or POC phase in their production. And you know, a lot of that is because of the organizational challenges. The other part of it is, frankly, data just gets trapped in these silos. And organizations don't know how to get the right data to the right problems. And so I think, you know, this is part of, you know, the the excitement of us working together here is helping, you know, customers figure out how do they view this as more of a, you know, a, a process, right? As opposed to, I've got my data silo, I've got my AI silo, I've got my analytics silo, and just assume somehow another magic will come out of the other end. What sort of NetApp solutions are solving this problem? Because I I hear this problem a lot, and I know the answer roughly, but I want you to say it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so ONTAP, right? ONTAP at the core, right? It, it, it can take a variety of guises. You know, it doesn't really matter if it's, you know, AFF or model training or, you know, hybrid fast, or we certainly extend out to storage grid. But having ONTAP at the core gives us that flexibility to do whatever we need to do, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud. And so that that seamless data movement is the key to all of this because we can get the extreme performance, right? We can get the peering off to local S3 or to cloud S3. And for these, you know, humongous data sets that we're talking about, especially in imaging, right? The, the, the numbers are, are staggering and they're growing because now, uh, just going back to digital pathology, this is something that is really finally starting to get traction. Uh, digital pathology, to me, would seem to be where digital radiology was in maybe the early 2000s, about 20 years ago, where organizations were starting to digitize, starting to ditch film, you know, printed film, starting to read digitally, all of that stuff until now hasn't really happened in pathology but it's really, really getting going. You know, we're seeing a lot of our customers doing those projects and, you know, it, the starting point is always petabytes. It's absolutely, that's that's just a rule, right? There's nothing less than petabytes when you're talking about digital pathology because of the, the resolution of the images and they're in full color, right, as opposed to, to shades of gray, which is what happens with radiology and most cardiology, unless you do sort of Doppler where you get some color. So that... Uh, is is just making everything explode in terms of requirements. And when you layer on any kind of AI on top of it and using that data for for training models, and even later on for inference, right? You know, you want to run some Mm. new images through a trained model, 
the requirements are just phenomenal. So you need to have a platform that not only allows you to have that performance, but also doesn't break the band because you're not going to, as much as we would love for this to be the case, we don't see people keeping their, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 petabytes of uh, archival digital pathology images on flash. Maybe we'll get there, probably, you know, but even with QLC, it's not quite there yet. So hearing is extremely important because you don't need everything in your kind of high performance tier at all times. Because, you know, if you have 50 petabytes of images, you're going to be using a few hundred terabytes or maybe a petabyte for training, but not everything at the same time. You want to have all the other stuff readily available and transparently available so you don't have to do any weird manual processes. But again, it's all about that flexibility. And it's not only for us on tap, but the whole ecosystem that we built around it. So again, it's maybe an overused term, but it is important to have that software ecosystem. It's about having, you know, cloud tiering. It's about even having uh, data sense, right? For for picking up uh, PHI, you know, protected healthcare information. If you move anything to the cloud, it's um, about doing things the same way, no matter where you are. So that, sorry, it's a, it's a long way of answering your question, but but really, it all starts with all that. So it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, digital pathology and only really having a lot of innovation in the last few years. I, you know, <laughs> I feel like innovation kind of is driven by necessity. And, and has something happened in the last few years where we had to start thinking more about pathology? <laughs> I think that there's kind of the usual combination, and I'll throw Matt chime in whenever. Um, there's maybe a shortage of pathologists. Yeah. You know, there's a shortage of, of medical professionals of all kinds, you know, radiologists and oncologists, whatever. And there's just more availability of, of that type of uh, study, right? As, as more people uh, are able to, to get better care around the world, all of a sudden, not only do the images go up in size and resolution, all that, but more people are getting the care that they really should have been getting all along and you have fewer people delivering the care. So it's kind of this perfect storm situation. No, I think, I think you, I think you nailed it. I mean, I think it's a you know, combination of, um, uh, you know, frankly, the number of images is increasing because, uh, you know, well, we in the Western world, um, you know, tend to think of, uh, you know, digital pathology as kind of normal, let's just say, and, and readily available you know, in a lot of emerging markets, it's just becoming, you know, uh, an available technology or, or more, more, more commonly available. Right. And so actually, if you look at the, the growth, uh, it is growing significantly in emerging markets, whether that be you know, Latin America or Southeast Asia, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of growth happening. And then on top of that, yeah, you nailed it. The, the, you know, the number of trained, um, you know, technicians, um, you know, are, are not increasing. And those that we have are increasingly complaining about burnout. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, whenever we talk to healthcare professionals about this, there is always a fear of, oh, you're, you know, AI is coming to take, take, take my job, right? Or it's coming to replace my, my people. And really that's not the goal at all. The goal is to actually, um, 
you know, basically use AI technologies to offload or supplement the the you know very overworked uh, you know professionals here, and you know reduce their workload effectively. You know, the AI is not going to completely eliminate the need to actually have you know trained. Uh, you know, trained professionals that that are going to analyze these images, but what it can do is greatly reduce the number of images that need to be uh, actually analyzed by eliminating those that are that are clearly negative, right? That are clearly not you know uh, an issue, and if you reduce the workload, it becomes you know a huge actual you know advantage for the healthcare professional. That it gives them more time to spend on the areas that actually need the attention, and it basically you know creates a um, you know a work environment that greatly reduces the stress that they're feeling by having to you know process so many you know so many images you know so much analysis per day per hour et cetera. And so I think it's a combination of kind of all of those that that's really kind of leading to this opportunity. Yeah, and to add on to that. Certainly, it's burnout, and it's about giving people superpowers, really. It's about augmentation. And, and if you look at what the American Medical Association has to say about AI, it's very interesting because they really don't even like to call it artificial intelligence. They want to call it augmented intelligence, just yeah. to know that it's not really a technology that's going to replace anyone. It's It's just helping the healthcare professionals that we do have working around the world uh, catch up with the, the the work the workload that they have it, it's not about hey we don't need you anymore it's about you're totally overwhelmed certainly burnout horrible thing even before the pandemic now it's out of control in the u.s we have these stats 25 percent of uh, medical doctors think about leaving the profession one third of nurses already having left the profession or drastically changed how they work you know going and, and doing travel nurse arrangements and you know what have you so augmentation is key and then when you think about outside the U.S., you think about countries that are extremely populous, like Nigeria or Indonesia, not to mention India or China, where they don't have the numbers of radiologists, of pathologists per capita that uh, we enjoy in the U.S., maybe, or, or in Western Europe. And even then, right, we, we have delays and problems, but in those cases... I've seen stats from the World Health Organization and the World Economic Forum that they're, they're projecting that, yeah, if uh, it was specifically about Nigeria and Indonesia, if they keep training uh, radiologists at the rate that they're doing uh, now, it would take them something ridiculous, like say 170 years to, to get to a point in which they, they have enough. So that's just not gonna work. That's unacceptable. And you know, in many cases, it happens that these countries uh, are growing very rapidly. It's countries that are, are not, you know, stagnant terms of population and they're not uh, decreasing like maybe Japan is or, or Russia. So it, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And then Justin just came to mind one of the things about uh, necessity that you were talking about. Digital pathology is a perfect example of that because before the pandemic in the U.S., the FDA required that um, pathologists would sign off on any report by the only way they could sign off on a report was by being physically present where the slide was. You know, they had to be by the microscope. Well, the pandemic hit, everything shut down in early to, uh, 2020. And all of a sudden, they had to introduce an emergency rule that said, well, that, that 
Dante says, we still need to have pathologists looking at slides and doing work, even though we know they are not going to be in their labs, you know, because we don't know where this is headed. So that emergency rule has been extended and we still have it. And that, as you can imagine, has provided a huge push to the digital pathology, right? Because all of a sudden everybody needed to have that. And so, you know, jury's still out. We'll see if, if the rule is uh, rolled back or not. But it, if that, that was the, the very definition of necessity, right? It's like unexpected, came on quickly. The bureaucracy reacted pretty quickly. And then it, it was like telehealth, you know, that, that uh, wasn't really used as much as it should have been, but because it was necessary, everyone was doing it. Well, digital pathology, I've spoken in the last year and a half with enough pathologists to, to realize that this is exactly what happened. They were not planning for it, but now that they've seen what, what things can be like, no one wants to go back. I think with the pandemic aspect as well, there's kind of an urgency, right? There's, hey, let's let's solve this problem. It's creating a lot of headaches for a lot of people. And, and then also, you know, this aspect now where we're starting to see long COVID become a you know, potential problem for people. Understanding COVID more in depth is going to take a lot more resources. And like you said, if there's a shortage, you need to have something that can, you know, augment it, right? Like <laughs> help out because there's just too much work to be done right now. And it's, it's a time sensitive thing. So I, I think there's a lot of drivers there and that's really where, where we're starting to see this advancement because again, necessity being the mother of invention, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I want to bring something up that's very near and dear to my heart and everybody's heart and met up for sure. And I think a lot of people, you know, probably mad as well unstructured data because something you know matt mentioned that in passing before and i didn't want to let it go because this is something that i talk about a lot you know with customers and it's about well so we know from reliable sources right you know good studies out there that about 80 percent eight zero percent of data in healthcare is unstructured the vast majority of that is entered into systems like an EHR or a PAX, and it's really never looked at again after maybe a week or two, and it has enormous value. And so this is an area that we really focus on because one of the ways to help with this augmentation or you know, to help the healthcare professionals, you know, the, the, the clinicians and, and you know, allied professionals who need help from technology, really, because of everything that we just discussed, is to get some insights, you know, get value out of this data that is just sitting there. And one other data point I'll throw out there, it looks that uh, there's some consensus that about 50 petabytes a year of new data is created in healthcare. Who knows if it's, but it, it, it's in that kind of order of magnitude probably. So if you think about it, 80% of 50 petabytes is 40 petabytes of unstructured data created new every year. And obviously, you get to hundreds of petabytes and, and exabytes very, very quickly. So what, what does that mean for, for AI, right? Yeah, for the availability of this data and what we, what we can do with it, the numbers, you know, there's, it, it's, it's a very juicy thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think what we're seeing is companies looking at, um, mentioned earlier kind of these large language models as an example and saying 
the ability to work, you know, basically take all of this structured and unstructured data that I have and start to make sense out of out of the vast majority of it to Esteban's point, that was frankly just stuck, right? Uh, you know, people, you know, had it but didn't know how to access it or to how to use it in any sort of meaningful way. And they're now looking at these large language models that have you know, just tremendous uh, you know, reasoning and, 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 and generation capabilities that, uh, you know, they can now access the, you know, the data within these previously unused data sources. And, you know, we have a number of projects going on in the, in the healthcare life sciences space where companies are looking to do this. And the, and the, the, the use cases are vast, right? I mean, it's everything on one end to a good example would be actually in drug discovery where companies are looking and saying, I'm looking to develop a new drug. I want to go and, and search through just the, the, the you know, massive amount of research that's out there on a topic. But I, feel, I don't have the ability to go and actually scan through you know, thousands of research papers. I want to use a large language model to actually go and summarize those and bring back to me what the most relevant information is. And they use that to quickly accelerate, you know, some of the drug research they're doing. That's one use case. On the other extent of it, you have, you know, things like, um, you know, customer care, um, you know, patient care effectively, and being able to take the multiple different data sources or interaction sources that a patient is having with a hospital or with a healthcare organization and bring that into a single sort of plane that the customer care or patient care person can look at. And that's, you know, if you think about that, you know, a lot of that's unstructured data, right? That's things like, you know, chat conversations with chat bots, email conversation, phone records, um, you know, some things in the EMR records, you know, we, we see a lot of different use cases around this that, you know, I think the, the healthcare life sciences or, you know, just companies are really just starting to scratch the surface on. And, but it all goes back to, frankly, you know, finding value in this unstructured data that they have that is, you know, frankly, you know, now becoming feasible with, you know, easy to use tools and APIs and things like that to, to make this, you know, large amount of data that they've stored but haven't really done much with, uh, you know, produce value. And so I think this is a huge opportunity for the, for the you know, overall industry to really, you know, take data and find more value in it. Yeah, having hoarded all that data for for so many decades at this point, it's now turning out to be useful. And you know, they they didn't delete the data because they thought maybe it was going to be useful. Who knows? And this paralysis, right? Even though they probably could have, but the mm -hmm. fact that in healthcare, the vast majority of, of organizations around the world never got around to deleting anything, even if the regulatory requirements have been met. Well, that that is now a huge help because it. It adds to the variety of data, right? It adds to uh, the the usefulness of, of a lot of disparate data to train these models to then get better outcomes out of out of all this data, which is ultimately what we care about, right? You know, just um, things like yeah, chatbots. I I hear that a lot recently, just using even uh, Bert, right? The model that mm -hmm. Kevin told more or less recently ended up being something that 
oh, you know, researchers talked about, but I, I, I'm hearing healthcare companies talk about their implementation of BERT for things like even internal customer support. You know, we're not talking about fancy customer, I mean, uh, patient care issues here. We're talking about, well, maybe you're a very large company and, you know, you, you need to have a better experience for your own employees. So have you encountered that, Matt? With, yeah, with yeah, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we've seen people, you know, kind of using these, you know, I don't mean to diminish, you know, Bird is still a very complex, uh, you know, transformer model. But, you know, using, um, you know, frankly, these AI uh, language models to improve things like customer service internally, right? You know, things like, you know, how do I actually, uh, you know, get a, a internal, call it an internal customer, right? You know, the relevant information that they need, right? And that's to be, I mean, one of the other projects we have right now is actually with, uh, you know, with a company that is looking to effectively use this for their own internal search capabilities, right? And what they're, they're using, you know, a technique called semantic search, which is, you know, basically, um, you know, applying uh, some amount of semantic to uh, what would be uh, kind of just a, um, uh, word-based search search, right? It's basically finding meaning within the the search characteristics that you're looking for and providing more relevant details. And this, but this is for their own internal people who need to find, you know, the most relevant information in a, in a very large company that has, you know, literally millions and millions of documents that that they're trying to serve up to to their internal, you know, internal employees. So yeah, I think, and I think we'll see more and more of that, where you know they can they can use the models for basically just improving the efficiency of their internal workforce as well. Yeah, I don't know. Our SharePoint is totally intuitive and perfect. They never <laughs> no always can find whatever I need. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What about cloud? Is something that obviously we we do a lot, and we see customers sort of. And there's so many different ways to to look at this. You know, you hear people saying, well, of course, you should do AI in the cloud because, you know, flexibility and scalability and elasticity. And then people saying, well, you know, we tried cloud. It's too expensive. So we're repatriating everything on-prem and, you know, everything in between. Where, where do you guys stand uh, with regards to cloud? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, our stated strategy is: look, we'll deploy wherever a customer wants wants it deployed, right? Um, you know, we but we see, uh, I'd say, a few trends. Um, you know, one thing that we do see is a lot of customers that have built their AI pipeline, their AI workflow in a cloud environment, right? And they could have either you know decided been born on the cloud, or they could have decided you know to migrate the majority of their IT or organization to the cloud. And you know now they basically say, hey, look, you know we we have you know all of our data here. You know we need to find a way to you know do advanced AI with this. And so for that, we we've developed a solution where um, you know NetApp's one of the references in this, where we could actually move data from a uh, from a public cloud, you know S three bucket, for example into uh, you know a private cloud environment and actually do the uh, the AI processing there and then send back a result to our setup, you know, think of it as kind of distilled models for inferencing backup in the cloud. So we can support that. Um, I would say one of the things that we are seeing kind of interestingly in the AI space is, um, 
you know, data gravity is a challenge, right? And we talked about this, you know, in the in terms of uh, you know the medical imaging as an example, right? Moving around these huge data sets becomes challenging and costly. And so, what we are seeing is. For some data sets, and I'm going to be very clear, it's not all data sets, but some of these data sets that are either um, sensitive from a, um, from a you know, uh, uh, governance perspective or sensitive from a, you know, a data perspective, um, you know, customers are not comfortable moving these in and out of a public cloud. So we do see some of those where, you know, it could be patient records, they could be, um, you know, uh, controlled by GDPR in, in Europe, where, you know, for some reason or another, they're just not comfortable with that. And, and because of that, we do see, you know, an increasing number of kind of on-prem and what I would think of as kind of, you know, colo sort of uh, deployments happening today. And it's really primarily around kind of that, you know, combination of data gravity, it just becomes, you know, very difficult to move data from one, you know, one cloud environment to another or from a cloud to on-prem, uh, or they have some sort of, whether it's right or wrong, security concern around putting things in the cloud. And so, you know, our strategy is frankly, you know, I think very much similar to to NetApps, which is, look, we want you to have the same experience regardless of where you run this. Um, and, you know, we'll make this very easy through a set of APIs that we make available for you to have basically the same experience regardless of where you want to run this. And I think that's very much in line with your strategy too, right, right Esteban? Oh, exactly. Yep, yep. And I think that's, you know, it's, you know, it's the world we live in, right? I don't know that there's one right answer here. Um, you know, the reality is customers have different uh, concerns and different, you know, challenges they need to live with. And I think our, our you know, goal as suppliers to, to these, you know, customers is to make it as easy as possible for them to, uh, you know, leverage the great technologies we're bringing in whatever consumption model they want. Yeah, you know, even though it does sound a lot like marketing, hybrid multi-cloud does capture it. Right? It's exactly what people want. They don't want to have to choose anything forever. They just you know, do whatever you need to do, whenever you need to do it. And then the idea is make it as easy as possible to, to get things set up so that you can do whatever you need to do, whatever you need to do it, whenever you need to do it. So that that's covered what we do with our data fabric. and. Certainly, yeah, data gravity, right? If, if you all have, sudden have uh, you know, multi-tens of petabyte um, data set, well, it, it's easier said than done. You know, lots of physics still apply and all <laughs> that. But certainly, in general, yeah, the, the ability to kind of have the freedom to do what you want to do is, is very important. And also, not to feel beholden to anything, neither to your on-prem, nor to your private cloud, nor to any specific public cloud. So just do whatever you need to do. Agreed. I would imagine that, you know, this aspect of how to move data around and how to access data in different places also helps with sharing of, of this digital pathology information. Because, you know, like you said, these other countries that are, you know, still gearing up and getting more used to having the the pathologists in the arenas that they're trying to, to delve into would like access to this data that other countries have access to. So it, would are you finding that that's a challenge that's being overcome or is that still a ways to go? Yeah. And I'll let Esteban chime in on this one. I mean, there is definitely, you know, some things that are being done to try to address some of this. So, 
um, you know, this, uh, there are some groups that are trying to do more publicly available, uh, anonymized, uh, uh, anonymized, sorry, uh, you know, uh, pathology data sets, right? So, you know, one of the big challenges in this market is actually getting a large enough data set to be able to train the models so that you can, you know, get accurate results. And so, you know, if you're a, uh, you know, emerging economy and, you know, you are just starting to collect this, you know, pathology data um, or images, you probably don't have a data set. So we do see some, you know, open source projects coming along in that regard. And we're trying to work with some of those. Um, that That's one thing that, that, that I definitely see. Um, you know, I think the other thing that, um, you know, is likely, um, I think, you know, you know, could it be kind of incumbent upon solution providers like ourselves is to actually provide in many times, um, you know, a pre-trained model, right? So one of the things that we are working on and we've, you know, we've been, you know, public about this, we've got a project going on with Harvard Medical where, you know, we are actually working with a large data set. And what we want to do is actually make this available as a pre-trained model that you know, someone in an emerging economy who may not have access to a large data set could use as a starting point with already a high degree of accuracy. Um, and so I think you know, those are the types of things that I see trying. I mean, I don't know, I guess you know, the other thing maybe you, you could talk about um, Esteban is, you know, there's also kind of this movement around kind of a cloud packs sort of model, right? Where you know, people are trying to put more and more of the um, you know, imagery in a cloud environment. Um, and I think that creates potentially opportunities to more easily access that data. But I don't know, maybe you can share your thoughts on that. Yeah, so all of that, in addition, the whole idea of federated learning and you know mm -hmm. whatever comes after that, that seems to be uh, making a dent, uh, especially to avoid having to share sensitive data across organization lines, you know, country lines. So it's tried and true in terms of, you know, if you have an Android device, you know, the Google keyboard, you know, you're training that model in your phone and then you're sharing only the train model up to Google and then they merge everything and, you know, that's how everything improves. So the thing is, you're not sharing any data. You're just sharing, you know, hyperparameters, weights, you know, in, in, in the model. So there's really no sensitive information that can be sort of de-anonymized to, to get to anything that could be a problem. So do you guys see that? I mean, I know federated learning is really sort of a, a Google invention, but you know, <laughs> to that to that effect, something where you can kind of share train models and kind of make everything better and keep going without shipping data around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we definitely see, um, you know, the desire, I guess I would say. Um, I, you know, personally, I think in the, you know, healthcare space, it's probably moving a little slower than what a lot of us would like to. Uh, it's a complex problem to solve. Um, and, you know, it gets even more complex when you talk about different countries um, in, in doing this um, with different, you know, data protection laws and things like this. But yeah, I mean, I think, I do think there will be an increased, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, advancement in this, in this area. I just think that unfortunately, it's um, you know I actually don't think it's a technology problem. It's a it's kind of a you know legal and patient rights sort of challenge that that we're kind of stuck in right now. And um, you know because of that, I think it's moving slower than what we'd like to see. But I do agree that it is part of the solution long term. 
All right, Matt Esteban, thanks so much for joining us today and talking to us all about uh, Samba Nova as well as how it deals with AI and healthcare. Um, so, Matt, again, if we wanted to reach you or find more information, how would we do that? Yep. Uh, you can email me at matt.taylor, T A Y L O R, at sambanovasystems.com. Uh, you can also go to our website, sambanova.com. And uh, there's lots more information around product uh, solutions, all of that. Uh, if you can't find what you're looking for, feel free to reach out to me. And Esteban. Yeah, so definitely reach me at esteban.rubens at netapp.com or on LinkedIn if you're not with NetApp. If you are with NetApp or a partner or a customer listening to this and you want to take a look at the reference architecture, please hit me up and I'll share that with you. And we can give you some examples of the things that uh, we've been doing and kind of go over some of the, the things that we discussed kind of in passing in this podcast, because clearly there's a lot more to delve into. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we'll include any links that you send me in the blog as well. Thanks so much for joining us and talking to us all about AI and healthcare as well as Samba Nova. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you'd like to share today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Matt Taylor of Samba Nova, as well as Esteban Rubens for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.